Have you wanted to opt out of the system lately? I don't blame you. Maybe you've looked at everything going on, economics, COVID, politics, and you started like Googling like private islands, <laughs> trying to figure out how you could afford to go to one or like a cabin in the woods, or maybe you've thought about how nice it would be to be on a space station right now. I relate to that. Sometimes there is so much that's broken uh, in the system that you just want out of it. And you can feel this kind of soulish thing inside telling you that the system is warring against you. Well, uh, in the first century, there was actually a whole group of people who felt that the system was warring against their souls uh, and their faithfulness. And they felt that the only way that they could protect their souls and be faithful to God was to opt out of the system. It's a community called the Essenes, and they lived at Qumran. And if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's where we got those from. Well, a lot of scholars think that John the Baptist was a member of this sect called the Essenes. These people who uh, felt that they needed to opt out of the system to save their souls and to be faithful. And it's interesting that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, before he really jumps into his work in the world, he goes out to the wilderness to meet with John and to be baptized. And a lot of commentators have observed that when you see the wilderness in scripture, it's sort of a way of saying away from the system, away from the powers of the system, away from the structures of the system, away from the influence of the system to find a, a kind of freedom or uh, a protection of one's soul when the system is warring against you. So Jesus goes out there uh, to the wilderness and then we read uh, in Matthew four what happens. Right after he's baptized in the wilderness, he gets pushed further out into the wilderness. We read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Now, the reason I'm calling this out today is we're talking about the soul and the system. And Jesus goes out to the wilderness, away from the system. He's tempted in the wilderness. And first of all, I relate, because if you've ever like gotten away from it all and thought that you would have this like blissful, joyful experience away from the pressures of the system, and then once you get away from the system, you realize there's a whole bunch of things about the system that have been sort of propping you up or distracting you or helping you not face your demons. And then you get out there alone away from the system and you actually face some really hard stuff. Jesus seems to have that kind of experience out there away from the system in the wilderness. And you might have heard a refrain that happens over and over again in this experience. Again and again, the thing that gets tested in him is his identity because the tempter says, if you are the son of God, like if you are who you say you are, or who do you think you are, or if you think you matter, or if you think you belong, I'm gonna test that right now and ask you to prove it. Jesus goes out to the wilderness and he has this harrowing encounter in the soul. And if you've ever wrestled with identity, you know that questions of identity are a crucible of the soul. Uh, some of us are, are projecting identity like crazy, trying to tell the world, 
I'm here, I matter, I'm somebody. And we're doing it with our resume and with the things that we acquire and with like the image that we put out on social media. Others of us are so afraid that we don't matter or we don't know who we are, that we just have a way of disappearing, like of not showing up in the world. Questions of identity are a crucible of the soul. And Jesus goes out there in the wilderness and he faces questions of identity in this crucible of the soul. And if we're gonna talk about the soul and the system, it makes sense to sort of interrogate this situation where Jesus leaves the system behind for a moment and goes out to the wilderness where he wrestles with this question again and again. Like, do you know who you are? Now, the thing about questions of identity is they're not just questions of the soul, though. Uh, they're also deeply connected to a bunch of things that are happening in the system right now. There's a, a guy named Ezra Klein, a writer, who's written a book called Why We're Polarized. Uh, if you want to do a deep dive on what's happening right now like in our country in this moment, I highly recommend it. It's a little bit wonky, but it's very insightful. And a lot of the book is Klein wrestling with how identity forms, and then how it operates in the system that we have and how it gets exploited in the system that we have right now. And he's working largely with an idea from social psychologists, which uh, would argue that identity is actually something that comes to us through group belonging, like group membership. Like we tend to know who we are uh, and, and feel a sense of who we are by lining ourselves up with a group that we belong to. And they point, by the way, to experiments that demonstrate that like identity and group membership is really important in the human species. So for example, an experiment that, that Klein relates in the book, researchers get a group of boys together. They all uh, attend the same private school. I think it's something like 70 boys. And they bring them into this experiment where they ask each boy to look at an image that has a bunch of dots on it. Like so many dots that you, dots that you can't really count them, but you make a guess at how many dots you're looking at. A little bit like guess the number of marbles in the jar, right? Well, so the boys all make their guesses. And then the researchers uh, sort of divide the group up into the boys that overestimated the number of dots that were on the image and the boys who underestimated the number of dots that were on the image. Here's the thing. It was totally arbitrary. They just told, hey, boys, you're the group that's sort of the overcounters, and you're the group that's sort of the undercounters. And then they tell the boys, hey, we have another experiment that has nothing to do with that. But while you're here, let's do this other thing. And so then they just get all the boys together and they give the boys dollars and they ask them to distribute resources among all the boys. And overwhelmingly what happens is the boys who knew that they were part of the group of overcounters distribute their money to other boys who are overcounters and the boys who were part of the group that was undercounters distribute their money to the undercounters, even though there was nothing about the setup with the money that told them they needed to do that. And further, when the researchers increase the complexity of the experiment and they sort of gamify the whole thing to where the boys have to make some decisions about whether they prefer a system where uh, perhaps their group gets more dollars and the other group also gets more dollars, scenario A, or scenario B, a system where their group gets less dollars than their group would get in scenario A, but the other group gets even less dollars in scenario B than scenario A. Overwhelmingly, the boys prefer the scenario that penalizes the other group, even at the expense of their group, over the scenario where both groups win. And what's most mind-blowing about this whole thing is the experimenters set all of this up attempting to, to create a baseline that was so innocent and inconsequential that it wouldn't be able to create group identity. Like they were thinking, there's not a chance that knowing that some of you overcounted the number of dots and some of you undercounted the number of dots, there's not a chance that that would be enough to stimulate group behavior. 
Like I got my group and you have yours and we are against one another. They thought they would lay a baseline so low that they would have to ratchet up the incentives through different experiments to figure out what ultimately is effective at creating group identity and behavior. And yet all it took was an arbitrary calculation about the number of dots on an image. We are so wired to know who we are and that we matter and that we're gonna be safe by deciding what group we belong to. Now, when I was growing up, I, I didn't really have a group. I was a bit of a loner, especially like through elementary school. Uh, I liked kind of being a loner, it didn't bother me. Uh, I remember sort of observing that some kids were really good at making friends and not really feeling like that was a big deal. Uh, I remember being sort of alone with my thoughts a lot and kind of enjoying that. Everything felt fine about not having a group until I started getting bullied. Uh, I was a bit of a runt. I was kind of scrawny, small, not strong, not athletic, socially awkward, young for my grade, and some bullying started happening. And I, I can remember today how as that became a part of my life and school began to feel a little bit unsafe, all of a sudden I was really desperate to find a group. In middle school, uh, I found the nerd groups, uh, like the quiz bowl team. Uh, in high school, music uh, was the basis for my group identity. And so I joined the marching band and it was a big school with a big old band. So there was like 400 students in the marching band. And what was great about that was with so many students in the marching band, like every class I was ever in, there were always at least a few other marching band kids. And then what you figure out is that if you can not only belong to a group, but maybe gain some prominence in your group, then that's going to go even better for you. So maybe you become a section leader or a drum leader, or maybe you try to be really good at your instrument and you gain more respect from your group. And then wherever you go, as long as you got part of your group with you, you're going to feel safe, like you matter, like you know who you are in the world. We are so wired for this stuff. Uh, now, social psychologists would argue that our species didn't get here arbitrarily, but rather that like very early in the history of our species, when things were really dangerous for our species in the world, that the way that an individual homo sapien would be safe and live long enough to propagate their genes is to find a good, strong group to be a part of. This stuff goes deep in our psyche. And I can remember in middle school and high school as I found my groups, uh, I wouldn't have this language for it back then, but you could feel that like finding a group wasn't just fun or enjoyable. It was existential and reptilian. That there was like something at the base of the brainstem that felt nice and safe and cozy once I found my group. We are so wired for this stuff. And Klein sort of surveying all these factors, uh, he observes that like a lot of what drives group identity, belonging and, and membership is fear. In fact, he says identity activates under threat. So, you know, maybe, maybe you are mildly Republican or mildly Democrat, but because the world feels less safe right now, all of a sudden you find yourself becoming militantly Republican or militantly Democrat or pick your group identity. But like mild things become militant things when we feel unsafe. And what's interesting is some political leaders are smart enough and savvy enough to leverage this for their power. So let me sketch a theoretical, hypothetical situation for you. Let's imagine that there's a political leader who's very smart, they're savvy. I'm not saying they're a good leader, but they're a smart leader. And let's say they know that for them to gain and hold power, they need a certain subset of, of the larger group that they're trying to hold power within to be for them. They know which faction they need to show up to support them. So in this hypothetical, theoretical situation, 
in like some theoretical place, like say the United States of America, let's say theoretically, hypothetically, this leader says, I need this group to not be moderately for me, but to be militantly for me. Well, what are you gonna do if you're smart about the human psyche? Not necessarily a good move, but a smart move, right? Well, you're probably gonna say, I need, I need to like activate the identity in this group that has them rooting for me. So maybe you, you turn to another group and you know that you don't need their support and you're probably never gonna get it anyway. And so you're speaking to group A and you refer to group B. And let's say that group B objectively, empirically, is not any more violent or criminal than group A. But that doesn't matter because you're not in it for the truth. You're just in it to activate group A's group identity so that they keep you in power. So you might say, theoretically, hypothetically, you might say crazy, completely baseless things about group B to help group A feel threatened and then you tell them that you're gonna keep group A safe. Like you might say, theoretically, hypothetically, that group B is just a bunch of murderers and rapists, even though there's no evidence for that, hypothetically so that you can activate this fear-based group identity in group A, because they're the ones who are gonna keep you in power as long as you protect them. I mean, you, you don't have to like scan the landscape of this current moment uh, too long before you find really difficult, painful examples of how this is happening. And then flags get waved, and identity groups get formed, and it's all driven on fear and threat. Uh, this is often how the system works and we get divided and conquered by it. Now, here's the thing. Identity doesn't have to be rooted in fear, even though it often is. Identity doesn't have to be rooted in threat. It doesn't have to be activated by fear or threat. Identity can be rooted in and activated by something else. And let me go back to Jesus out there in the wilderness because right before he gets driven into the wilderness where his identity is tested, Right before that, this happens at the end of Matthew chapter three. Jesus is baptized. And as soon as he's baptized, he comes up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven is opened and he sees the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. See, identity doesn't have to be rooted in or activated by fear. Identity can be rooted in and activated by love. And we need this desperately right now. Uh, Jesus seems to have a, a, a rock solid, deeply grounded sense of identity that is rooted in love and belonging with God the Father in such a way that, that he can basically like subvert all of the group identities that are operative around him because these groups get entrenched and animated by fear. And so you see Jesus throughout his life in ministry just sort of like poking at any kind of group boundary that he finds because I think when you are rooted in love, you're gonna see all these fear-based group identities as part of what is dividing and conquering us and, and hurting us and you're not gonna wanna play along with that. So like for example, he's walking along minding his own business when a Roman centurion comes. Now this Roman centurion, is, is, is an embodiment of the occupying power that has its boot on the neck of Jesus' own people. This guy's the oppressor, part of not just another group, but the empowered group that is ruining the lives of Jesus' people. And this is like a great chance for Jesus to like flip the bird to the empire, right? To like make a really big statement about all these dynamics. And all he does is celebrate this person's faith and make sure that a servant is healed. Well, I mean, that, that is kind of a flagrant violation of a group identity boundary right there, but he does it. There's a Samaritan woman who comes to Jesus, and Jesus, uh, there's a lot of interpretations on this moment, but Jesus, I think, is actually playing along with the group scripts that are operative 
so that he can subvert them, which is something that God does throughout the scriptures. God will inhabit uh, something, uh, a social structure, just so that he can subvert the social structure. So here Jesus plays along and tells this woman from the out group that God is only here for the in group, but she pushes a little bit and says, I don't know, I mean, even the dogs get crumbs. And I think Jesus says, yes. And that's why he celebrates her. Jesus finds himself among the adults. The adults are their own kind of group, right? We're the serious ones, we're the important ones. And then a kid, a very unserious and unimportant person, Jesus brings into the middle of the circle and says, the kids are where it's at. Or uh, Jesus is in Luke 4, uh, inaugurating his ministry, and he reads the scroll from Isaiah, and the scroll is talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, and he says, it's happening right now, right here with me. And everybody gets excited, and they say, hometown boy is gonna be the hero, amen. And then a couple of verses later, they try to kill Jesus. So like, what is it that takes the crowd from amen Jesus to kill Jesus? Well, the thing that he does between amen Jesus and kill Jesus is he says, oh, by the way, as the kingdom of God arrives, you're gonna ask for some miracles, but the only ones that I'm gonna give you are the kinds of miracles that happened in our past where Israelite prophets perform miracles for Gentile outsiders. And that's the thing that takes the crowd from amen Jesus to kill Jesus. You just see him poking at these group identities and boundaries because he knows that love can't build a world based on that, right? Uh, even in his inner circle, he has Matthew and Simon. Matthew's a tax collector. He's sold out to the empire against his own people. Simon is a zealot. He's a member of a militant revolt against the empire. People in Simon's group literally kill people in Matthew's group, but there they are together in Jesus's inner circle. Love keeps moving around in Jesus' life, just poking at these group identities because identity doesn't have to be rooted in group or fear. It can be rooted in the kind of rampant love that dissolves those boundaries and draws us into one human circle of belonging. Uh, sure, fear can activate group identity, uh, but we can also activate it with love. Um, this explains to me uh, some of the things that we are seeing in the world right now, like around race, for example. Um, there's a lot of fear that seems pretty operative. And the funny thing is, um, nobody ever interrogates the moral nature of fear. Like, when we're afraid, I don't think we ever judge ourselves for being afraid. Uh, we judge hate. Hate is heinous, right? But we don't, we don't really judge fear. But the problem is, fear is precisely what builds a world full of hate. Uh, fear feels innocent. Um, but there's got to be a reason that Scripture says over and over and over and over and over again. Don't, don't you fear. Don't make a home for fear in your life. And I think it's because uglier things come from fear. You know, uh, a, a white woman is in Central Park, and she has her dog off a leash. And a black man respectfully asks her to follow the rules. And what does she do? She picks up the phone and she feigns fear. Not hate, just fear. And she calls out that there's a black man uh, making her feel threatened. And like in that exchange, you can just see these group identities uh, being played out. And again, she doesn't perform uh, hate, she performs fear, but the effect when that behavior is played out in our society is a, is a system that ends up being hateful toward black people. Uh, fear can lead to the ugliest kinds of things like hate. And I think we all know like hate builds the world that we do not want and we cannot stand for. But we gotta do the work. We gotta, we gotta reverse engineer our way back to discover how these group identities rooted in fear could lead us to hateful uh, interactions with other groups and I think that's why Jesus is going around poking at these group identities because they're forged in fear and they build a hateful world. 
This explains to me why the church is talked about the way that it is in the Bible. Uh, if you've hung with Stop and Study Church for a little while, you've heard me uh, bring up this text before, especially recently, because it just seems so important for what's happening right now. So for example, in the book of Colossians chapter three, we read, you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now all of those categories named, uh, Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, the, these are group membership categories. These are identity categories that, that, that Paul here is saying are blown apart in the church. They're not operative in the church uh, because, because love is drawing us into a kind of belonging that isn't observant of those kind of group lines, right? Now, as I say that, if you've been around SBCC for a little bit, you might have some questions for me. Because I'm just, I'm celebrating this idea that there are no group lines in Christ, that, that we derive identity from love, not from, from fear. And yet, we talk about group stuff at church sometimes. Like, we'll ask, like, like what is it like to be a, a black person in America right now? And what are like white people like me need to understand about that experience? And what's our part in fixing that experience, right? Uh, we'll talk about um, women and all the ways that things are unjust for women in the world that we've built. We'll, we'll hear from our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and try to understand the, the unique um, pain that can come with that experience because of the world that we have built at large and in the church. And if you've been around for some of that stuff, it might feel to you like we are actually doubling down on the group divisions that we're trying to dissolve. But the reason we do it isn't because like we're excited about these group divisions. We do it because they exist whether we admit it or not. And you can't fix a problem if you pretend a problem doesn't exist. So like we're not doing it to try to reinforce group division. We're, try, we're, we're doing it to try to call out the group division that we have already built in the world and in the church so that we can do something about it. There's a moment in the book of Acts where uh, there's two groups. There's Hebrew-speaking widows and there's Greek-speaking widows. And the church discovers that there's uh, uh, an inequity between the ways that the Hebrew widows are being taken care of with resources and the Greek widows. And so they don't, they don't pretend it's not there. They don't like, like chastise the people who are raising the problem and say, oh, don't you know in Christ there's no Greek or Hebrew? No, they say, oh, we got a problem, we got to fix this. And so the, the community gets together and they appoint leaders. And by the way, they, they actually raise up all Greek leaders to deal with it because it's the Greek widows that are being abused and not getting their fair share of the care that the community can do for them. So right, like right there, the church, they don't turn a blind eye to these group identities in the way that they are operative. They call it out so they can fix it. Now, there's another way or two that that maybe Christians or, or churches would, would try to deal with all this group fear that's going on. One way to do it is to say, um, well, you know, hey, you know, the right sees something this way and the left sees something this way. So let's look at the right, look at the left, split the difference and put a flag down and act as if that's where Jesus is. Uh, you can actually see this happening very clearly like on social media right now. Republicans say this, Democrats say this, but Jesus says this. And the problem is like often what, you, what you'll see them doing is just, okay, well, the right puts its flag there and the left puts its flag there, split the difference, and that must be where God is. But that's absurd, right? Because when you do that, you're not subverting group identity. You're letting everything be driven by group identity. You're letting the right and the left set the terms of the debate and then expecting that somehow God looks at the right and looks at the left and splits the difference. But like surely that can't be the way it works, right? Like I suspect the life of the kingdom of God often will take us in directions that look 
quote unquote to the right or conservative or look quote unquote to the left or liberal. Uh, but the trick is to be rooted so deeply in love that you go wherever love takes you without regard for whether you're trampling on the turf of the right or the left, right? And one of the other problems that the church faces today, I think, is that as uh, political parties or powers uh, claim issues for themselves, uh, the church, if it's afraid of being political, uh, will find that the ground of its own moral witness keeps shrinking. Because as the right or the left claims issues, and we say, well, we can't touch it if the right has claimed it or the left has claimed it, well, then the ground of our own moral witness will keep shrinking until there's nothing left. That's not how you subvert group identity. That's actually playing along with group identity by letting the groups set the terms. And I don't think Jesus cares about where the groups are setting the terms. I think he wants to set the terms and they are always set in love. Uh, so, so we're going to keep working this out as a community. Uh, but we've got to find ourselves rooted in something other than fear and group identity while we work it out. There's this thing that Matthew says, or that Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, and it's also been on my mind a lot the last few years. He has that list of blessings at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But the, the one that stands out to me right now is blessed are the peacemakers. He says, for they will be called children of God. As if to say the same kind of belovedness and belonging that he knew when he came up out of the water and he heard that voice that said, this is my son. Uh, now, granted, he was out there in the wilderness where he heard that, but then he lived his life in the system, subverting things and flipping tables, right? As if to say that we too can know that same belovedness and belonging and that we don't have to opt out of the system and stay in the wilderness to experience that. Peacemakers are people who bring that belovedness and belonging back into the system and push against the system wherever that belovedness and belonging is being withheld from somebody else. Like we don't have to retreat from the system to live this kind of belovedness and belonging. We can move into the system and try to create something better together. But it's, it's gotta come from a place where the soul knows that it is rooted in love. Um, there is just this insidious thing where we are capable of becoming the very thing that we are trying to defeat. Uh, and whatever you're fighting cannot be defeated by the power that created it. So if fear is driving groupism and injustice in the world, you can't fix the groupism and injustice if you are rooted in fear. We've got to find ourselves rooted in love. Um, I've known um, some bona fide peacemakers, and I've discovered that they tend to lose the groups they're a part of, and yet they don't find other groups waiting to receive them. Like a bona fide peacemaker finds himself often somewhat groupless and alone. But they also, I think, are at the threshold of an experience where they will know the kind of cosmic belonging and belovedness with God that could like never be defeated or taken away. I've had a few tastes of this. I've lost some groups, or I've had some groups lose me, uh, kick me out. Uh, we're um, a few rooms where I used to be welcome in, I'm, I'm no longer welcome in. And at least from where I sit, I would say it feels to me like it's because I've been, I've been trying to pursue the kind of belovedness and belonging for everyone in the world that we're called to, and it can hurt a little bit. And yet, in the process, you'll find yourself being liberated from groupism and fear and being invited into this kind of cosmic, unassailable, invincible belonging and belovedness that, uh, frankly, I wouldn't trade it. Like, I don't care what group will take me back. I don't care what group will take you back if you just forsake the belovedness and belonging that we are here to build for everyone. The belovedness and the belonging is better.
Now, I want to propose a practice for us this week. Um, it's a simple practice in, in theory, but it, it can be really hard for the heart. And it's, it's part of rooting ourselves in belovedness and belonging for everyone. It's simply this. I want to propose that we pray for our enemies this week. I don't know what the enemy group is for you right now, but I want to propose that for the next seven days, you carve out a little bit of time every day to pray for or to meditate on your best, most generous wishes for an enemy person or group. Uh, the obvious, the easy one might be, like however you plan on voting this year, pray for the other group. Pray for everybody who really identifies with that group. And by the way, here's the good news about praying for your enemies. You don't have to feel it. Like you may not feel good things toward that other group. You could still be formed by the practice of praying for them and praying blessing for them. Or maybe it's not the political divide. Maybe it's like in the workplace. I don't know, maybe you're in sales and engineering is just driving you crazy or the other way around. Or maybe it's in your family system. I don't know, maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your school. But uh, I think we should spend the week praying for our enemies. And I don't mean this lightly. I'm not just gently proposing this. I'm saying I'm your pastor, do it. Pray for your enemies this week because that's one of the ways that we punctuate or that, sorry, that we perforate, that we kind of break down the sort of group identity, fear-based stuff that's going on inside of us because if we don't root it out of us, we can't build a world of belovedness and belonging for everyone. You cannot defeat things by fighting with the very power that created them. You gotta fight with a different kind of energy in life and it's gotta be love. Uh, the kingdom of God and the life that it promises is so full of belovedness and belonging that I, I actually believe that if, like Jesus, we can root ourselves in it, not just say yes to it once, but say yes to it over and over again with um, habits and practices, with hopes and prayers, that if we can do that, that we will find ourselves rooted in love in such a way that we can actually build a world where more and more people experience the kind of belovedness and belonging, less injustice happens, uh, and there's more goodness in the system. So friends, uh, may you face the crucible of identity. Uh, may you go into those harrowing and challenging places where perhaps you have to ask if you know who you are. But as that happens, may you open your heart to the voice of love that claims you as beloved daughter or beloved son. And having been rooted and established in love, as the scriptures say, may we move out into the system to build a world of belovedness and belonging for everyone. And may grace and peace be with you.